Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. Um, our second episode since our break. Um, what are we talking about today? What are we talking about today? Uh, well, <laughs> last week, last week when we were talking about episodes, we were trying to come up with ideas and we were thinking, you know, the, the political world is a mess, but we've talked about it quite a lot recently. And we were thinking, is there, are there any pop culture stories? Are there any pop culture stories? And there were none, but this week there are so many, we're swimming in pop culture stories. Um, there are pop culture stories exist to distract us from things that matter and we get distracted. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Today we are talking about the biggest distraction of them all, certainly in Britain, the royal family. Yay! I love this topic. topic. Um, we are big fans of the royal family, are we? Well, it, in a sense. I mean, in the sense that they're really productive and we've gotten a number of episodes out of them, Yes. I, I think that's the first time anyone's described the royal family as productive. <laughs> have I told my, the time I saw the queen, have I told this story on the podcast? Uh, I don't know, but I think you should say it again. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm American, but I'm, I'm not one of those Americans that's like super obsessed with the royal family. You astound um, me. <laughs> it is astonishing. Um, but I've, you know, I know about them and obviously I knew who Prince Diana was and whatever. But I've always just found them a bit funny, like... They're sweet and weird, and it's a really strange institution, and the queen is really boring, right? Like, the, all the usual kind of things. And I had friends, you know, I've had friends who are like, oh, I've, I've always wanted to see the queen. I've always, I would love to see the queen. Oh, my gosh. Da, da, da. And I was walking down the Royal Mile, walking home, and it was in Edinburgh. And there was, like, a really small crowd, like a really small group of people, a, a smattering of people, mostly tourists. And there was a very tiny motorcade, the smallest motorcade you can possibly imagine, made up of like one policeman on a bike and one police car. And I was like, oh, maybe there's a minor royal in town, the, you know, because at the base of the Royal Mile, for those of our listeners who don't know, there's a massive castle. Well, it's a palace and it's owned by the royal family and the queen and some of her relatives sometimes stay there when they're in Scotland. So that's where I was. And I was like, oh, stick around. Maybe it's Harry. Maybe I'll get to see Harry. This was before Megan. And, and I, so I, I was waiting, I was waiting, I was chilling. And then all of a sudden the motorcade begins to move. I'm like, yeah, cool. I wonder which, which one it's going to be. I wouldn't recognize Andrew or Edward or Anne or like, I mean, it would take me a long time even to recognize Charles on the street. And the, the car drives up and it looks like a hearse. Like it's a really, like the, the royal family drives around in these like weird cars with big old windows so their subjects can see them. And it looks like a hearse. And I'm kind of watching as they go by with curiosity. And it's the queen and Prince Philip. And they're like waving. You know how they do the little wave? They're both waving and they're smiling. The queen is smiling at me. And, you know, I'm standing there and I'm like, oh my gosh, the queen is smiling at me. She's made eye contact. She sees me. She's smiling. And me, Republican, anti-colonial, anti-imperial, feminist, I find myself waving back. 
I can't help it. I'm like waving at the queen and smiling. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? How is this possible? And then I wandered home and I told everyone I knew that I saw the queen. Um, there's, 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 I've heard this, you tell the story before. I think we've spoken about this before, maybe even on the podcast. But there's something there about the importance of ritual in terms of the way it um, sort of demands a kind of complicity. I remember thinking, uh, my I've never met the Queen. I'm very jealous. Uh, oh, I didn't meet her. <laughs> That's coming, though. The podcast is going to get us yes. into Buckingham Palace. The way we're going, it'll probably get us into the Tower of London. <laughs> That's, a, That's a separate uh, point. But my, my similar experience was, and again, I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, um, watching BBC News coverage of the election of the Pope. And I'm suddenly finding myself going, is it black smoke? Is it white smoke? I need to know. There, there is nothing that matters to me less than who the Pope is. But there's something about the ritual of the Catholic Catholic Church in the way there's something about the ritual of the monarchy that demands and therefore achieves a kind of complicity where while all of you knows everything about the problems with the institution, you can't help but be sucked into the the rituals that justify its existence somehow. Yeah. It was quite funny because there were no British people there. And obviously Scottish people, for the most part, don't care. Like aggressively don't care. And uh, so there wasn't that much Scottish support for her. It was just tourists there like waving at her, which I think is important for what we're going to talk about today context why are we talking about the royal family again um megxit megxit uh which you may or may not have heard of if you haven't heard of and well done (laughs) um news in the british media and i'm guessing around the world as well the way things go have been dominated by the story of harry and megan separating themselves uh what was it was it the face conscious uncoupling is it that that's what's happening yes um gwyneth paltrow and chris martin's yeah. divorce um they're they're divorcing or trying to divorce themselves from the rest of the family and financially financially they want to be financially independent and they want to spend their time between north america and and britain and they want to resign from being what's called senior royals. Yeah. Uh, so they won't do the royal duties of going and going to various countries and waving and so on. Um, but key to this, yes. and I think this is really important, the key to this is the reason that they don't want to participate in these duties anymore is because of the relationship it requires them to have with the media, with the, with the press. And there's kind of a long and storied history around uh, tabloids, and tabloid news media and uh, the monarchy, certainly during the, the kind of generation of Charles and Diana and stuff. So there's that kind of going on. But they've explicitly said that what, they're, what they would like to do is set up a new life, job, role, uh, activities. I don't really know exactly. Um 
where they have more direct access to their fans, their supporters, their subjects, their fellow citizens. I'm not it's it's unclear exactly what their relationship is to the the people that follow them on Instagram, for example. But the idea is because the majority of the journalists and news media outlets that have exclusive access to the royal family or tabloid news media outlets, they see this as a problem. And so they are extricating themselves from royal duties because they don't want to have to perform for tabloid journalism. Which, I mean, given how we've talked about how the tabloid media treats Megan, and indeed how it treats most people, most women, and certainly women of color, it's not that surprising. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a very clear narrative on Harry's part, right? Like, you, the tabloid media, played a large part in destroying my mother's life. I will not let you do the same to my wife and son. And I won't be complicit. I won't, yeah. I won't drag her out, we won't perform for you to then write your stories. Yes. Except, of course, the, you know the ambiguous relationship between them and their fellow citizens, subjects, fans, supporters, loyalists, whatever, is based on access to media. Yeah, um, that's all it is. And it's that sort of the quite central problem of not being able to give up privilege, right? You, it's, it's not privilege isn't something you can cast off. Um, the BBC uh, coverage of this has been fascinating in lots of ways, and we'll 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 talk about uh, a little bit more about it. Uh, but sort of in one article, there were sort of two sentences pretty much followed one after another. In the first sentence, BBC talked about how they are seeking to become financially independent, and then in the next section, next sentence, they talked about uh, how they are preparing to apply for trademark. Uh, of the name Sussex, which is their family name. I mean, the, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Um, it's the title. It's the title, which, of course, involves and is centered on all of the privilege of the royal family and the and the feudal system in Britain, which is what they're trying to monetize in a way that separates them out of the feudal system but plugs them into a more secure sort of 21st century capitalism, um, you know, separating out from the feudal duties of the monarchy through to a, a, a more, a, a system that is more closely aligned to sort of 21st century celebrity culture. Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of things here. The, the first is, I mean, uh, people always talk about the monarchy, they call it a firm. But we are reconceptualizing the monarchy. It is a firm, obviously, uh, but it is more importantly, I think, as you say, in the context of 21st century capitalism, it's more importantly a brand. And anyone who is a member of the royal family and makes money from the royal family is a brand ambassador. And the trouble, I think for Harry especially, is without that brand, he doesn't have a job because he is only an individual. And we talk about privilege, and I think it, we should be clear when we specify, we don't mean 
privilege existing solely at the site of him as an individual being able to wield his kind of social capital. He can't escape it. Like it's a, it's a matrix of power and without it, he has nothing. He doesn't really have a way of making money off of the brand unless he rebrands it. And so the way that, you know, previous Dukes of Sussex would make money off of the land, off of the the place itself by presumably collecting taxes from the people who live there. He is branding it to make money off of the entity. It's not, I mean, it's not really, it's a place purely in, in a symbolic sense, but it is actually a place. Sussex is a real place. There are people there. <laughs> Should be said. Clearly, bereft that their leader is abandoning them. Yeah, (laughs) and also trademarking their home. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, But it it is it is fascinating. This this idea of the brand uh, is is really is really central to how the monarchy exists today and the role it is perceived to have in today's Britain. you said earlier on how people in in Scotland generally don't care. It's and, and I think one of the things that really fascinates me about about the monarchy and the and the monarchy's public profile, the the sort of popularity, uh, or, or or otherwise, is in Britain the, the, there are a group of people who are royalist and support them, which you know I don't share their political position, but I understand that as a logical tenable position as it were but the 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 position that really confuses me which is a position a lot of the left share i think which is a kind of meh you know don't really support them but don't want to actively think of alternatives even the even the yeah they're just rich people yeah even the far left who have a lot to say about class in britain and clearly don't support the monarchy, aren't Republican in the sense that the Irish Republicans are Republicans. In other words, Republicanism doesn't seem ever to define the British left in any way. Uh, And that I really find fascinating. And I think a lot of that is to do with the the brand of the royal family, which, uh, as we said before, enables or demands this kind of complicity. You'll hear a lot of arguments made where, like, you know, yes, they are drained on the public purse or whatever, but they bring in a lot of tourism as as a brand. Part of how Britain sells itself to the world is 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 through the through the royal family. You know, think think of the crown on on Netflix. Uh, it is no coincidence, I don't think, that pretty much the first bit of news that the BBC reported when it was announced that Harry and Meghan are transitioning out of the royal family was an interview with, I think, a producer of The Crown mm. who said, we are probably not going to have Harry and Meghan because we are probably not going to bring it to the present day. Uh, but the, the, the brand that is the royal family exists in part through things like The Crown uh, as a way of selling Britishness abroad, um, which is why I think or one reason why even the British left don't seem particularly invested in getting rid of the royal family. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting thing. 
the obviously in in the US you have and I think it's clearer in the US what this relationship is. It is a brand and and Americans relate to the royal family like they relate to branded people. Um, you know, we have the royal family in the US, but we also have the Kardashians. And before the Kardashians, we had the Jonas Brothers. And before the Jonas Brothers, we had the Kennedys. But there is, and I'm obviously looking at this from, from a complete outsider, it does seem to me a that... complete the, outsider. For America. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There is a... There is a, a a difference in the way the royal family often inspires a kind of deference in America, which seems to me particularly post-colonial, in the way that there might be a lot of attraction and maybe love and maybe jealousy for the Kardashians or the Jonas Brothers or the Kennedys, but they are the kind of nouveau riche, pale version of the truly classic British royal family. Well, it's because their blood isn't blue. Yeah, uh, but but also there isn't there is a post colonial element here as well, right? That it is it is a, a the the post colonial hankering after the empire that you've managed to shake off, but you part part of the shaking off process isn't complete yet. And I think it's not. I think even. It's more specific than than the empire generally. It's a specific kind of motherland type thing, a sort of um, which is very characteristic of settler colonies. The desire to be like our cousins back home, and and I think Meghan Markle particularly fits into this narrative, right? Yeah. The 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 way that she has been treated by the British tabloid press is is in large part to do with race, absolutely. But there is also a transatlantic metropole colony uh, uh, argument going on here. So one of the places that it is rumoured that Harry and Meghan might move to is Canada, which is part of the Dominion, right? It's it, So they, they, they would still be living, you know, within the realm of the royal family, but it is North America. Um, and I think the 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 way in which Meghan is perceived definitely within Britain, almost certainly within the royal family, as the colonial upstart who traverses the the gap from empire to metropole, and not just to the metropole to the very heart of the the family that represents empire uh is is a huge part of this whole story. Yes. What I think is super interesting is that this whole saga and it is a saga the the British media has done what they always do with royal family which it ultimately is kind of what the royal family is for it generates money for lots of people. Is it's become the kind of soap opera of the royals so there was a a summit. I mean, next time I go home and there's more than three family members in the room, I'm calling it a summit. Is it going to be the Sandringham summit? Though? The Sandringham summit. It's not. It's going to be the San Rafael summit. 
it's a possibly the Irvine summit. But no, it. But it is a. It's a funny. It's a funny thing where they get together and they have to have a. They have to have a conversation about about the plans because their relationships are completely bound up. Their social and familiar relationships are completely bound up with their economic relationships. So obviously, the queen has to talk about their allowance because it it is one and the same. It's her job to dole out the money as well as to be the matriarch. And that is just how the institution works. It makes perfect sense. The British media have have done what they always do and have laid on top of this story a narrative, a really interesting soap opera narrative about internal bickering and feuds and women who can't get along and brothers you know, destined to fall out and, you know, this like weird, weird story. But that is all good for the brand. Ultimately, what's happening right now is good for the monarchy. Do you want to say a bit more about why? So they're partly because they're behaving like a family. So they're behaving like a kind of moderately dysfunctional family who just has a lot more capital in which to behave dysfunctionally or like with which to behave dysfunctionally. So they can do weirder stuff because they have the means to be weirder essentially, but they're behaving in a way that we recognize as the behavior of a family and the behavior of a small company, essentially. I mean, small in size, not in profit, but like the, and when they behave like a family, we consume the story ravenously. Yeah. Uh, I, I was listening to the NPR Politics podcast the other day and they were mentioning the story. And one of the presenters said, it's the meanest thing you can do to your 93-year-old grandmother. Uh, <laughs> and, it's, and, you know, whether or not we agree with that, I think what is interesting for us is the way in which so much of the story gets mapped onto a set of familial relationships that we can understand as if the royal family was any other family right so when the when the uh, british news covers stories about the rifts between harry and william we can you know we might be able to understand sibling rivalries or difficulties of sibling relationships or when the media covers stories of Kate and Megan not getting on. Again, we can understand, you know, two women marrying into a family don't always get on. And the the subtext, it's never ever mentioned, it's never ever made explicit, but the subtext is these people are in then sort of like you. Yeah, and they're perfect, there's also the perfect amount of they're also just enough not like you to make this entertaining. Yeah, and... And seem more significant and meaningful. I, I think that significant and meaningful is really, really, really key here because uh, we can talk, and, you know, there are lots of conspiracy theories about why this story is coming on now and whether or not we agree with that. It is clear that, you know, in the context of Brexit and, and Iran and lots of other more important things, this is a useful distraction for, for, for status quo, for the powers that be. Um, but it is more than that because in, in the distraction is the justification of their existence, right? That that the royal family becomes important. The royal family is not irrelevant because this is happening. And in that sense, you're completely right. It is, you know, the, the story, however it ends up, 
is ultimately good for the band. It's ultimately good for the royal family in that they keep their relevance. They keep managing to demonstrate that they are a part of 21st century Britain and they should be allowed to continue as a part of 21st century Britain. Um, there's another royal story, another, though. Which also has a transatlantic connection, which I've only just realised. <laughs> uh, do you want to explain the other story? Oh, so I, I'm actually not as familiar with it because I haven't been paying that much attention to it. But during the strikes, some of my colleagues had some pretty excellent commentary about it. Can I just say I love the fact that we are describing the story as happening at the same time that the strikes were happening because <laughs> the strikes are clearly much more important. <laughs> so it was important to mention the strikes. Uh, it's, so it's our strike, by the way. Yes, yeah. you strike, which we've mentioned before and we'll probably mention again. So the... Uh, the other story is, and I don't know how much it's appeared in the international media. I'm sure in the United States it was reported, but uh, another royal. Is he a minor royal? Yeah. He's a younger he brother. He's certainly now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the queen's, one of the queen's younger kids, Andrew, a prince apparently, um, he made the news for doing an interview, a very high-profile primetime television interview, in which he was asked... It was a wide-ranging interview, but the, the key takeaway bit was when he was asked about his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, who died in prison last year. And he convicted was in prison pedophile. because he was a convicted pedophile. And serial rapist, I think. Yes. yes. And it, it was also, has also been connected to like Donald Trump and allegedly connected to Donald Trump. And and there've been a number of women who've come forward and say, said that they were abused and raped uh, at various points by Andrew and other men who happened to be at Epstein's parties. Yes. Uh, and Andrew's interview, which was pretty generally regarded as a disaster, was an attempt to defend himself uh, from these searches. Yes. And he, I mean, what did he, how did he describe? So, so there were lots of kind of classically British takeaways from this. Um, he used Pizza Express as an alibi once for those of you who have never been to Britain, Pizza Express is kind of like a, uh, it's like a Chili's or an Applebee's for pizza. Um, so the pizza that, chain, pizza pizza yeah, chain. Yeah. Um, it's like he. What other? Th- what else came out of it? Um, the one that was particularly gross for me was uh one of, uh one of, the women who accused him of rape said that she particularly remembered him being very sweaty. Ugh. And he dis- he said that at the time he had a medical condition that allowed meant he couldn't sweat. sweat. Oh, yes. Uh, so the, the, there, were, there were a lot of granular, is that the word, detail yeah. about particularly, you know, I was, th- I was going to use the word intimate, which is probably not the right, right word, but what would have been particularly traumatizing for all of the accusers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the way the story was covered, the way the interview was covered, was entirely about whether or not Andrew was successful in defending himself against the charges, rather than what effect might this have on 
on these women. Yeah, what's really interesting about this is the the way that the monarchy is tried in the press and not in court. So there's that bit where none of this none of this is relevant in terms of criminal activity. You don't get to just tell a journalist that you're innocent and then and then the the public votes, you know, it's not American Idol or X Factor. But that is sort of how the monarchy deals with the world. It it communicates via the media. The other bit that for us I think is really important here is that after the interview, it was kind of unclear and a bit murky how the how the firm was dealing with Andrew. And it still is murky and it is a question around and it there's been um you know there's memes especially of, of people who are critical of the the monarchy and who are kind of in support of Harry and Meghan's you know, current decision that the monarchy is is laying down the law with Harry and Meghan, but they're kind of sweeping it, um, Prince Andrew and Epstein under the rug. And I think that makes perfect sense here because this kind of thing does not doesn't work for the brand. Yeah, you there's no way you can you can spin sibling rivalry or, or sisters in law rivalry as example of a, a normally dysfunctional family uh you can't spin abuse abuse and criminal activity and, and criminal activity as as that you there's there's no there is no way to make the andrew story relatable uh for for the general british public and in a sense what matters isn't whether every single story about the royal family is a positive story or not what matters is that the royal family stay relatable and therefore relevant. And the Andrew story has no no way to, to be relatable. Yeah. Like Prince Philip's, like, they call them gaffes. I would call them racist statements or misogynist statements that are all on record. He's an old uncle. You know, a lot of people have uncles who say offensive stuff. So when he says something and it's in the press, people are like, either they think it's hilarious or they think it's problematic and weird. But it's not... It's it's within the gamut of normally weird. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's good for the brand. Yeah. And and the, the Andrew story just isn't. Yeah. Um, and I do wonder, and this is just speculation on my part, how these stories are connected in the minds of a royal family that is securely British, apparently, and therefore presumably not predisposed to liking America and Americans. And to what extent there is a kind of anti-American racism at work here, or anti-American xenophobia, rather, at work here, that, in the minds of some members of the royal family and their support, are somehow connecting Andrew Epstein and Meghan Markle as examples of these upstart colonials who are making friends with having relationships with our our people and then leading them astray oh uh piers morgan i i, I wonder if we've mentioned him before I, I hope we haven't but you know and if we haven't it's piers, incredible that we've uh, yes uh, gotten this far yes anyway piers morgan Here he is. uh tv personality 
tried to make it in the United States yeah. and was sent back home for being too mean. <laughs> Professional, professionally unpleasant, I think is yeah is one way I describe him. Um, talks about how and and he he had a tweet where he used explicitly these words that she came here from America, got married into this family, and is now actively trying to create divisions between her husband and his family. Which, going back to earlier point, is is a narrative that is familiar for many families, right? It's it's whether it's true or not. There are lots and lots of families in which that narrative is present. It's also familiar for the royal family. So, yes, for people absolutely. who people who know anything about the royal family, know that in the abdication of thirty six, is that when he? Yes. Uh, another transatlantic story. Another transatlantic story where Wallace Simpson a divorcee. I mean, and the the. This connection is that we're not making it. It has been made tons of times before where Meghan Markle is Wallace Simpson 2.0. Um, you know, it's... Yeah, so it's a story that maps on to many families. It also maps on to the royal family. But the... Right. Andrew story doesn't. doesn't, and it's, you know, I can see given given how little the queen says, and given how little she appears to do, and of course she has an office that that act and do things. Um, it, imagining what she could do about her son you know it's hard yes it's hard to think about what would what would be an acceptable an acceptable um course of action to protect the brand right and she said in the crown right have you seen the crown have you watched the crown i watched the first season but then i gave up after that the for after the first season it's uh yeah i find it quite boring but tom finds it hysterical he thinks it is hilarious. So we watch it because he thinks it's funny. Um, it's not. I just think it's really sad. And they're rich people. But the the common refrain that they always come back to, if you haven't seen the show, is that she needs to protect the crown, the office of the crown, and the family is protected by extension. So the, fir- so the family is only protected insofar as they're protected by the institution of the crown. Which is true. Which we, is, we, started, we started by saying yeah. that Harry doesn't have a, a, a way of making a living, really, that is not connected to his royalty. Yeah. And the, the Andrew story would fundamentally shake the crown. It's the monarchy would struggle to survive, I think, if they did anything. Which is why it's no coincidence that the BBC is covering the Harry and Meghan story much, much more than it ever covered the Andrew story. Yeah, because there's a symbiotic relationship, parasitic relationship. I don't really know. I mean, individual lives get destroyed, but lots of money gets made, so give and take. But the, the British media also relies on the royal family. So there's this close relationship that they have with each other in order to create a kind of mutually beneficial situation. 
And the Andrew story doesn't benefit anybody trying to make money off of the royal family. Do you have a sense as to how the two stories were reported are being reported differently in America? Oh, I have no idea. It's just because I don't really care that much. Like, yeah. I care to the extent that can we mine it for podcast fodder. Like, ultimately, that's how I engage with the world now. But I don't really know. Partly, too, my family doesn't really care. My mom was like, get that paycheck, Megan, when they got married. But other than that... Because I, I would be interested to think, I mean, how would America think of Meghan Markle differently if she was white, for example? Or how would America think of Meghan Markle differently if she was a Kardashian? Do you see what I mean? Like if she, yeah. if she brought her own social capital in some way, uh, or, or more social capital than, than she did when she... When she yeah. got married into the royal family. Yeah, because she was a celebrity, but she wasn't an A-list celebrity. Oh, yeah. She was a she was a very well known, and she had lots of followers because she had a website, and she was she was a social media celebrity. And not that I don't mean that social media made her famous. I just mean that she was a celebrity who used social media as her primary mode of communicating with her fans and with the public. I mean, you know. It's, she wasn't a Beyonce, right? Like, th- no. there's, there's, there's clearly degrees of celebrity. Yeah. And she was a professional actor. She had a, she had a career, and she was well known for a number of different programs. Yeah, uh, she's well, she's. I think she's well known for working. Yes. She's well known for being a, a, a kind of working TV actress. And I'd, I'd really love to know, and maybe some of our listeners might tell us how, how would America have treated or thought of her as different if the if the narrative that the narrative of this is a if it was Beyonce marrying Prince yeah so it was it if if it wasn't the um I hate to use the phrase but the sort of gold digger narrative oh, right like the, if yeah it there was the, that because the, the, there is a sort of you know a, a a minor celebrity gaining a lot of social cachet through this marriage. And that that dynamic is going to exist pretty much whoever marries into the royal family. But when the person is of color and the when the person is not British, I think those those that that narrative gets uh highlighted more. Yes. I think I mean it, it, you can't really say that America, the United States as a whole place would have a response because the U.S. is so big and so internally distinctive from itself, more so than the U.K. Um, Regional differences in the United States are huge. So while certainly in the the kind of West Coast world, which was Megan's world, she's from California, um, she's from Northern California, she's, um, from her website, she was, quite progressive and liberal of course and she was very she was a lot like people I know that's not appealing necessarily to somebody from a really different part of the United States it's not something that you connect with so clearly um so I think it she was she's subject to racism among Americans but she's also subject to a lot of progressives give a lot of weight they put a lot of weight and kind of symbolic importance to her role so it's for some people it mattered that she was also a woman of color 
it was all, it was a, another reason why it was good. And for other people, it was a kind of racist, you know. I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of historical parallel, um, the the other parallel, you know, it doesn't quite work in either direction, but the closest I can think of is Grace, Grace Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. Um, you know, the Monocoral family clearly isn't isn't quite as prestigious and big as the British royal family, but it is European royalty. Um, and wealthy. And wealth, yeah. Uh, and again, there is this kind of, you know, a, a kind of nouveau riche American celebrity that relies much more on characteristics such as fame and good looks mm-hmm. and wealth as opposed to a more classically traditional European social capital yeah which relies on heritage and mm. class and class and lineage yeah um, yeah it's yeah. true um i mean megan is it is classically beautiful um and americans definitely grace kelly was the, the kind of cinderella made human like personified and i think you're right that physical appearance and um celebrity that comes from work whether that i mean it, it, that work could be modeling but modeling is hard labor um that that's what makes you worthy of being royalty and it is true i mean one of the th- one of the the weird things that i think a lot of americans talk about is um the queen isn't she doesn't look like a disney princess in the photos and videos of her coronation americans find that really strange because you grow up if you grow up with a narrative in the u.s that beautiful people make more money and beautiful people are more powerful of course it's not a true narrative but it is a it is a very very powerful story in the united states there aren't many people in the royal family who are classically beautiful no and that well that's the whole thing with kate middleton right like and princess diana they fit a kind of American and therefore somewhat international set of standards around what it means to be an attractive woman. And so I think for for Americans, it kind of makes sense why these princes would marry women who aren't kind of upper class British aristocracy because Americans kind of, yeah, Americans think of Grace Kelly. Yeah, and, and there's, a, you know, there's a, uh, in many ways a lot, like, you know, Churchill's mother was American, so there's 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 a, a, a longish tradition of British nobility, aristocracy. Uh, well, Boris Johnson, right? Boris Johnson, yeah. Uh, upper cl- The upper class British uh, Downton Abbey Downton Abbey uh, Marrying Having relationships with The upper class in America Yeah But the the class system is working differently So it's it's not quite as simple as Class is more determinant than, than national boundaries Because I think in both cases Each 
the upper class is looking for something yeah. that the other upper class is giving you, as it were. Yeah. Uh, and it's one reason why so much of the argument about and and this in in a sense connects us to our, our episode next week. But so much of the argument about Meghan Markle marrying into the royal family, demonstrating a post-racial royal family or a post-racial Britain, was so flawed because. And this is in no way to un, to to undermine all of the racism that Meghan Markle has had to go through. But the marriage was never really about race. It was about class. Uh, and it was about different different tr- elements of the royal family, right? So the because the privilege comes from the crown, William's position within the family is very different from Harry's position. Charles's position is very different from Andrew's position. So part of why... The, the the royal family, even though it's dealt with the two stories differently, has arguably dealt with both the Harry Meghan story and the Andrew story. Is that in both cases they were the the the, the younger siblings, as it were. Yes. And and the 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 lineage of inheritances hasn't been challenged yet. Yes. I think that's probably a good enough point to end. Uh, let us know if what we missed. Yes. Uh, what do you think of the royal family? If you, have, if you have any opinions about them. <laughs> Who's your favorite royal? Who's your favorite royal? Uh, Anne. Fair enough. Um, look after yourself, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richaudhry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Thank you.